This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Claire Jimenez. Oh, some of you may know her debut story collection. It was a while ago called Staten Island Stories, but what happened to Ruthie Ramirez? Everyone needs to read this book. Everyone, I, it's wait until you meet Nina and Jessica and Dolores. They are just going to, mm, it's so great. Claire, it's so good to see you, but can I ask you to introduce yourself and the novel just because it's fun. Yeah, it is so wonderful to be here. And thank you again for inviting me. Yeah, so my name is Claire Jimenez. Um, I am, I'm originally from New York, but right now I just moved to South Carolina, mm-hmm. Columbia, South Carolina. I'm an assistant professor of English and African-American studies at the, uh, over there. So yeah, and I'm a writer and I just got my novel coming out. So very excited. Okay, but let's talk about these women. We do open with a rough spot. I mean, their sister has gone missing, and we're 10 years after that event. But Nina and Jessica and Mama Dolores, where did these women come from? Where did Ruthie come from? How did this novel start? Definitely, I was thinking a lot about, you know, uh, missing Black and brown girls and women and indigenous, uh, Indigenous girls and women and how there's less play and there's less attention to those stories. Um, when they happen. That was definitely inside of my mind when I was writing. And I was also thinking a lot about reality TV. <laughs> I was thinking of that time, you know, at the beginning of the millennium when reality TV was just everywhere and everybody was watching it. And it was addictive, but it was it was violent and problematic, right? And then thinking about how often the bodies of Black and brown women become sites of violence mm-hmm. on shows for entertainment. That combined with working retail and just thinking about Puerto Rican women and Puerto Rican voices, those all came together as I was writing the novel. You are very funny. Your oh, women you. are very funny. You set up a lot of very funny, uh, let's call them set pieces, right? Because there are, there are moments in the, in the story, you're moving the story forward that Dolores spends a lot of time talking to God and she has opinions and she is awesome. But you're also talking about colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're also talking about poverty. You're talking about you're talking about really big, sometimes hard ideas. But the way you sort of pass it off to us in this novel is such a delight because of these women. And I have to come back to it. So who showed up first? Which of these voices showed up first? Oh man, that prologue I think was actually the the first thing that came. I remember writing it in Nashville. I was in the MFA program there at Vanderbilt, and I remember it actually was at this. I think it was Cafe Coco or something like this. I lived very close to it. That was back when you can like live in Nashville, close to uh, Vanderbilt. Now it's like you know million dollar houses everywhere. But this was ten years ago, and it was and I it was that voice that that came to the surface, thinking about disappearance, thinking about loss. Nina's kind of, you know, quick wit and summary, but also grief. And so once I had that voice, I'm, I'm a writer who thinks first about voice. Yeah, yeah. And then who listens to the way people talk. And, you know, sometimes I, I have a document that has random words and, and quotes that things that I think about or things I might overhear on the bus. And I, I, I may never see that person again in my life, but it might trigger something inside of me. And so once I nailed down that voice, the rest of, you know, the rest of the story came together. But it it first started as a short story. It didn't become a novel to many years later. 
Okay, I heard it started as a short story called Cat Fight. Uh-huh, and Cat that's right. Fight is the name of the show itself. That's contained. Right. So instead of a book about a book, you've written a book about a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent. But here's yeah. the thing. So Sister Ruthie, who is, it's Jessica, then Ruthie, then Nina, right? Yeah. Ruthie's the middle child. She has disappeared in the at the end of the 90s. And we meet right. everyone as adults. And it's been made very clear that no one knows what's happened mm-hmm. to Ruthie. The police are not particularly interested in helping the family find out what's happening. And dad has died. And right. so it's really, at this point, it's Jessica, it's Nina, it's Dolores. Yeah. But you give everyone sort of, let's call it a turn at the microphone, right? Like everyone gets to narrate their own chapters. Nina sort of lays everything out for us. Jessica's a working mom. She's got a toddler. She's got a partner who loves her. It sounds like they've known each other since junior high, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we're in this really tight community. And Dolores knows everyone else's children. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Everyone knows. So you kind of can't keep your business to yourself. Ah, yeah. (laughs) And Dolores was also very young when she got married and had her first child. That's right. So how do you set this up? I mean, you know this world. You started with the story. This is not autofiction. I mean, there's a little bit of overlap. There's some details. I mean, Nina is going to work at the start of the Great Recession. So she ends up with her fancy college degree. That's right. Selling That's underpants. Right. Yeah, yeah. At the mall. Yeah. <laughs> She's not happy about it. Yeah. <laughs> But you have so many threads working through. I mean, there's class consciousness. There are the sisters being in different places, emotionally, intellectually. Where did you start? I mean, yes, you just told us you started with the voice and the prologue, but that's not all you can do. Originally with the short story, it was Nina's voice. And then I had trouble really placing the story and thinking about it. And then only in years later, I had already um, graduated from Vanderbilt with MFA. I was adjuncting, I was working many jobs and I kind of tapped out and I said, you know what? I'm gonna go back and get my PhD. And then I went to Nebraska of all places. And I remember I brought this story in and um, Janice Adji, she was she was one of the professors there. Yep. And she was like, you know, Claire, I think that the problem with this story is that it's not a story. It's a novel. And she's like, oh, I needed to okay. give me 80 pages, you know, at like, you know, in a few weeks and okay. which kind of terrified me because I was like, oh, what will this what will this look like? And the only way I could really envision telling this mm-hmm. story was through multiple voices. Right. right. And thinking about this is a story about a family. This is a, this is a story that's not just one person's voice. It's sort of a chorus of women mm-hmm. right, who are building and adding upon the narrative. And I, I wanted to build upon the tension of what is known, what each character knows and what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that and how does that vibrate against each other as the novel progresses? Did you surprise yourself at all while you were writing what happened to Ruthie Ramirez? I did. Yes, okay. I did. Can we have an example that's not a spoiler? <laughs> oh, man. Well, yes. You know, I think that I surprised myself with the mother. I think I was worried about, you know, writing the mother's um, perspective because at that time I wasn't a mother. Only recently I became a mother, you know. And so now and and then I I understood a, a little bit of what was was happening there. And I think I surprised myself 
when I realized that so much of like that I could frame I could frame her sections as sort of this one-sided prayer, right? Yeah, and completely. I thought to myself, like, what would that mother's voice sound like? Mm-hmm. And it would be after after missing a daughter. And for me, knowing that this this character, it would be that you're constantly praying, you're constantly hoping, you're constantly thinking about your daughter. And that's how that section kind of unraveled. I also surprised myself with Irene, who is like Oh, her friend. Uh, Dolores yeah, Dolores' friend Irene. Yeah, Dolores' great. comadre, right? <laughs> like, I wanted a trickster right. character, and I was like, okay, Irene is the perfect trickster. Like, I'm going to have her come in and be, like, comedic relief, but also be, like, you know, really be a comadre to Dolores. Like, okay, you know, she's she's there to, to help her through these moments. You know, the other thing I appreciate about Dolores, too, and when she's talking to God, it's very funny. <laughs> I mean, it is very, very funny, but she's also really angry. Yeah, she's angry at what she's seeing happen to other women, not just her daughters, but like she teaches a parenting class at a church and she's like, you sent us a priest who's like 20. How is he going to how is he going to manage us? He has no idea what he's doing. And, you know, women don't often get to express their rage. It makes other people very uncomfortable. That's right. And Jakira Diaz actually said Ordinary Girls, um, the author of Ordinary Girls, she actually has a very cool line about how your characters reject respectability. And I love Absolutely. that. Me too. Can we yeah. just noodle around with that idea for a second? Because I think that's really important that these women are kind of like, you can judge me however you want, but you're wrong. And they will go to the mat for each other, these girls. They are just, <laughs> they're great. But they don't owe anyone an explanation. And that just feels so refreshing to read in fiction right now. Yeah, I love Hakia for saying that. I mean, just, I, you know, because I feel like it, as another Puerto Rican woman, I feel I feel like she really got and understood the novel. And, you know, there's for Dolores' section in particular, I wanted it to be a pr- prayer, but I also wanted it to be a profane prayer. I wanted it to have that anger that's honest, right? And the way these women grieve might not be the way somebody else grieves, but that is just as legitimate. It makes me cringe when I hear people say, you know, like, oh, this is this feels too profane, or I don't like the way these women talk, or they should talk a certain type of way. Because what that says to me is like, you care more about profanity than femicide, right? Or you're you're asking somebody to talk in a polite way about something that has ripped their life in half, right? And respectability politics are often a tool of white supremacy, right? It says, tell, you know, tell me your story, but in a way that won't offend me. And that to me is so troubling, right? And so this, this book is absolutely against that, you know, and so, and I'm unapologetically, and I as an author am unapologetic about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I would never ask you to. I think what you do is so smart, though, but by making these women so engaging and so funny, and so smart, I was just pulled through. And also, I mean, it moves. You do not. There is no slowing down of the brakes anywhere, which I really love because I just I needed to know. And that's kind of all I'm going to say, because I do not want to spoil this book for other people. It is so good. This book, it is Thank so, you so, much. so good. You know, and I know you and I were talking about this before I hit the record button. We have to talk about Puerto Rico because I feel like there are a lot of folks out in the world who don't understand that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It is not, in fact, a separate entity. And that really does inform your women, too. I mean, Nina and Jessica, Nina doesn't speak Spanish, just doesn't speak Spanish. She's a New Yorker. She's a New York kid. And but at the same time, 
there is some internalized colonialism happening that she and Jessica are kind of butting heads over and a little bit with mom, but mostly it's the sisters. So let's bring people into that part of the conversation. Well, yeah. And I think the the first thing is like a lot of people don't understand the colonial relationship between the United Mm -hmm. States and Puerto Rico, the way in which the United States has not treated Puerto Rico well for, you know, since they uh, acquired it, right? And they don't understand that because of the nature of citizenship, that there's often a circular migration or that migration is violent mm-hmm. or that there are people in Puerto Rico who want independence, right? Mm-hmm. Like what that that history of that migration, how that might shape the lives of people in the diaspora. So for this right. family, Dolores is very much shaped by that, right? And so the question that I, I kept on coming to while I was writing the novel was how do how do these daughters inherit that right? right. Even though they're not first you know first generation immigrants coming to um, or migrants right would be the more yeah. appropriate word but there are ways in which that experience overlaps a little bit to coming to New York. In what ways do they inherit that right? And, and and how does that play out inside their lives? So I was really interested in exploring that for Nina right. There's there's a loss of language that brings mm-hmm. a lot of shame. And what does that mean? How does that affect the way she, you know, talks to Jessica? What are what, the resentments, right? You know, mm-hmm. or the way in which she feels Nina's a person who doesn't really feel like she belongs anywhere, right? She doesn't fit in with the cool girls in her middle school when she's trying to dance. And she's not a person who fit in at the predominantly white college mm-hmm. she went to, right? And then she also feels like sort of like an outlier in her family. And so I really wanted to play around with that. I sort of feel like Jessica's happier and more settled than Nina in a lot of ways, even though things are not the easiest for her. But I do feel like she's got a little bit of a better handle on things. But let's give listeners an example of what Jessica's own internalized colonialism looks like, because she's doing it too. She's doing it too. I feel like with Jessica, she wants a better life, mm-hmm. you know, she wants, you know, to be better paid. She wants these things, whether she knows how to get them, you know, that's, that's something that she's definitely struggling with. I think she, you know, early on in the novel, she struggles with the whiteness of Lou's family. And I think this comes up inside of the, inside of the novel. She's also unapologetically Puerto Rican, but she's also very light-skinned, right? And so this comes up inside of their conversations too, right? But she also speaks great Spanish, you know? Like, so there's these ways. I wanted to make characters that were complicated and characters that were complicated linguistically, um, racially. Jessica is light-skinned, but her her mother is not, right? Nina is not, you know? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to represent the diversity inside of that family. Yeah, no, I really appreciated that because, I mean, the thing is, too, we love reading stories about sisters because they're complicated. And we do get to meet Ruth. Yes, Ruthie has disappeared, but we do get to meet her sort of in the days and weeks leading up to her disappearance. And she is very much her own person and very much not like her sisters at all. <laughs> I mean, she's a great character. She's a She's a fantastic character. She's also very 13. She's yeah. like all of the big emotions and all of the things and all of the feeling and da, da, da. and it's just like the energy that Ruthie brings to the page, even when yeah. she's not there. Yeah. It's wild. It's so great. Can we talk about structure for a second? I know you said earlier in the show that, you know, obviously you knew you needed multiple voices to tell the story. You still keep it very tight. I mean, this is under 300 pages. I mean, this is a very tightly told novel. 
So what did you have to get rid of? Because you and I both know oh. that first drafts are not that clean. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I wrote hundreds of drafts, hundreds. Like I, that feels like it's an exaggeration, but it's not, you know, like I just, at first I wrote the story backwards, you know, at first it, the, the, the novel looks like a lot of short stories. Right. And so every time I changed the structure, I had to cut something off, you know, and so like things didn't fit or it felt sur superfluous, you know, and I, I think at one point I decided like, okay, so I'm just going to tell it straight. I'm going to do a typical kind of journey narrative because everything else is so complicated, right? Having a multi-voiced multi novel, um, being able to make each of those voices distinct, being able to switch throughout, you know, like switch perspectives, you know, and have a Ruthie perspective as well. Like I, I was like, okay, so maybe I should try to find in terms of plot to shoot straight with it, even though a lot of there's a, there, in ways I think I subvert that at times, you know, like I, I make little turns, but. You definitely do that within each section. And I think there are a couple of moments where you play with time in a really interesting way, but they also feel dangerously spoilery. <laughs> they feel very, very spoilery. Yeah. And I do, I like the fact that everyone's always in a very contained space. So you're in a room in a church basement, you're in a specific place in school, you're in the, you know, one of the apartments, there's almost a language that goes with each place. And Dolores kind of says this in a, in a couple of different ways, where yeah. she's like, well, there's the face you show here, and the face you show there, and the face, and yet I feel for these women, you know, this code switching that they have to do. And it's just like, oh, you can't catch a break. Yeah, I think that's really apparent with Nina, you know, especially being, especially during the, the sections where she's at college, where she really navigates and has this awareness about like what her, what she looks like to white people. Right. Yeah. And then she's, and she plays around with it a little bit. Right. But I did, I wanted to think about place for Nina, for example, you know, there's the retail store, right. The Mariposas, that lingerie store for Jessica, there's the hospital. For the mother, it's the church, right? And like to see, like to bring those places alive, you know? Of course, there's the island, right? Staten Island is like the stepchild of New York. It's like what it is. It is. It is. <laughs> to bring it in there too, to sneak it in that Staten Island wall, the ferry, the water, yeah. Yep. Yep. So. And we have a store in Staten Island, and I've been there multiple. I've been to both oh, yes. the new store and the old store. So I know at least that piece of it. But yeah, Staten Island really, like there are times where you kind of look at it and go, right. That is one of the boroughs. It's not, no yeah. disrespect to Staten Island. It's just, <laughs> if you live on Staten Island, you know what I'm talking about. And yeah. I think too, like the Southern tip, people forget that it's very suburban and not at all. Like there are parts of Staten Island that feel a little like New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, South Staten Island, South Shore, yeah. It is kind of its own place. And, you know, Dolores certainly ends up there by marriage. I don't think it was ever in her plan to have her children, like Nina was not planning on coming back. Jessica's kind of like, I have a nice life. I'm going to do my thing. This is home. Yeah, I think Staten Island, I mean, there is this trajectory of folks moving from Brooklyn to Staten Island when things got kind of overpriced, right? Yeah. So Staten Island used to be much cheaper. Now I look at the prices on Staten Island, I'm like, oof, what, they're charging a million dollars for the townhouse? Why? You know, but I think back in the 90s, it was definitely much more affordable, you know? Brooklyn was much more affordable back then too, but um, you could probably get get more. And so it's a family that you know is looking for the nice house, you know, is looking for something that resembles you know like the American dream, right? Which of course collapses 
when we think when when Ruthie disappears, which I mean, this is why also I when I fast forwarded it to when they think they see her on a reality, on the reality show. show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I really wanted to put it in 2008 because I wanted to talk about the economic crisis there. I wanted to talk about all of the ways in which you uh, you know this idea of the American dream was really it became it, it felt fragile, right? I think it's still fragile for a lot oh, of people. Of I mean, yeah. you know, you have a PhD. I, I didn't know you went to college in Maine. Like you did your undergrad in Maine. Like you really can't find that many points that are further from Staten Island on the East Coast. Like physically, I think technically it's further than like, it's just. <laughs> And so I say this as a person who Canada. went to college in Maine, too. Where did you go? Yeah, I went to Bowdoin. Oh, you went to Bowdoin. Oh, right. Yeah. So, we're so like, like down the road from you, like, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you go to college in Maine. You then go to Nashville for your master's in fine arts. You get your MFA in creative writing in Nashville. And then you end up in Lincoln, Nebraska for a PhD. And now you're living in South Carolina. And part of me is wondering if you needed to leave Staten Island to be able to write about it. You know, that's a really good question because actually when I went to Nashville, I got into this program never thinking I would get in and then it happened. And then they paid for everything, you know, you stay, like even during recruitment, I remember they paid for the whole time. Like, oh my God, this is so different than the life I'm currently living. But I say all of that because having that time was really important to me as a writer because I was able to get writing done, you know, and I also say that because being inside of Nashville, I realized that I was constantly writing about New York, you know, when you're inside of the the water, you don't think I'm swimming in water, right? <laughs> like, and so I think that people were like, listen, you're always writing about women, you're always writing about, you know, Staten Island. Um, and for me, when I was writing my stories about Staten Island, I wasn't thinking I'm writing about Staten Island, because that's where I lived. And I think that that's the beauty of having a program like that, because it helps you understand what are the themes and the obsessions? What are the places you keep on going back to? Mm-hmm. No matter where I live, I always go back to to those places. You know, I haven't really written about living in the South, right? Even though I live in the South right now, um, I haven't really written about living in the Midwest. And I think sometimes that's because I'm not that far away from it yet. Whereas New York, I, I was born and grew up there. And so that's where I keep on returning. I mean, one of the beautiful things about New York is you kind of do have to leave every now and again to remember why you're there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great place to come back to. And and I do. I love living here and I love being here. But sometimes you have to just remember that there are places that aren't here because we're such a weird little microcosm of, you know, some pretty great things and then some things where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah we could yeah. do that better. <laughs> yeah. We could really do that better. Like, why are we doing it that way? That just seems like a bad idea. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about literary influences for a second, though, because you've always been a reader. I'm pretty sure you're one of those folks who's also always wanted to be a writer, whether you knew it or not. Like stories were always that thing. So let's dig in there for a second. And not just the people you studied in school and not just the people you studied with, because, I mean, that's a delight and that's great. But I think it goes deeper than that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've always loved writing. I've always loved reading. I mean, books have always been a part of my life and storytelling as well. I I really love authors like James Baldwin. Um, I was telling somebody else in another interview there, I was like, I'm a very different writer than James Baldwin because he's, uh, I always wanted to write like James Baldwin because he has a wonderful, expansive, like preacher voice, the beautiful control over sentences and clause upon clause. Mm -hmm. 
but even though I stylistically I'm different, I'm still inspired by him every day. Like I remember rereading another country over and over again and just thinking about like, wow, how did he do this? You know, that opening where Rufus is walking through Times Square and you're just like, oh, Oh, hi, hi. And because I mean, also, I mean, that book, wait, am I right? It's set in the 70s. So Times Square was kind of gross. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I mean, he's doing so much there. I, I for for me, it's because it's also like dealing with lots of different characters. He's like dipping into different points of view. For me, I feel like really the question that book is posing is like, given all of the violence, uh, given all of the terrible things that our country has done, how can we ever love each other, right? And uh, and and that is, ugh. I mean, he's he was just brilliant, you know. But he's another one who was doing lots of point of views. I think about that. I've always loved you know, books that are about characters, that are about characters' voices, that are really getting into the head, heads of people. Books with a lot of scene, right? I love Grace Paley. Uh, you know, I love writers like, you know, Pedro Pietri, who, these are the poets, the Puerto Rican poets of that age. Um, Tony K. Bambara, you know, like writers who are really thinking about voice. Th- those are some big influences. There's so many more, you know, I just, when I get stuck, I, I go back to the, the books I love. And, you know, Sigrid Nunez, I think is wonderful. She doesn't have the tilde over the end, so I think it's Nunez. But I just think she has an excellent command of sentences. Now, that's one of the things I really appreciate is I was reading what happened to Ruthie Ramirez is you clearly are thinking about all of the different pieces. You're using characters to move the story forward. You're using characters to play with time. You're using character to play with perspective. And we get this sort of really dynamic 360 in a really tight story like i can't stress this enough you were just like i don't need 600 pages i'm just doing this how i'm doing it and i feel like i know these women really really well and i feel like everyone's gonna be okay i do like i don't feel like i'm spoiling anything by saying every like they'll get there right this minute Thank you for saying that. Like, it is so nice for somebody to notice craft. You know, like a lot of times people look at writers of color, they're like, oh, you know, they only talk about like what the, the book is about as opposed to how how the book is built. And it's so nice to to feel seen and be seen, you know? Yeah, no, no, no. Craft is important. Craft is really, really important. I mean, for me, I know you said at the top of the show that you read for voice first and I read for voice first too. I mean, there's some people who just want to be told a story and there's some people who have to like the characters. I'm like, yeah, that's not me. I don't, <laughs> I don't have to like the characters, but I need to care. I need to be invested. I need to have skin in the game. If I'm sort of shrugging my shoulders at the characters, good or bad, then there's no there there for me. But language matters. I think language gets thrown out occasionally. Now, granted, also, like, was I taught to, you know, diagram sentences as a small? Yes, I was. Okay. I went to one of those schools. <laughs> And it's a really useful thing to know how to do. I do have feelings about grammar that you and I can save for another conversation, but I think, <laughs> I you know, conversation. yeah, you and I would both be, but at the same time, it would be eight hours long yeah. and there would be a lot of, uh-huh. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just, yeah. I think grammar can be used in ways that, you know, are not good for the wider conversations we need to have about class and privilege and other things. And to know that these women can navigate their world, right? Mm-hmm. And just be who they are and be like, yeah, you can tell me what you think you're telling me. And mm, no. And I yeah. love that it's happening at all of their different ages. I mean, 
Dolores. I'm guessing Irene is, you know, Dolores, roughly Dolores's age, or maybe a little older. And she's just like, oh, you girls. I mean, Eh. (laughs) there's a moment where Irene and Dolores get into a club. Yes. And they leave the girls outside and the girls are like, hey, wait, we're with them. And and, and they're yelling the names and and Irene just turns around and goes, no, we don't know them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was so fun to play. It was so like, Oh my! I, I've been thinking a lot. I've been talking to my students. I teach in the MFA program over here, and I've been, I've been talking to them a lot about play, right? Like, and you know how sometimes when we're in a workshop, we forget to have joy while we write, and that was much fun to write. And it reminded me, it was like, this is why you started writing, right? And I, I've been thinking about incorporating that more into my practice. It's so important. It's so so important. And the other thing is too, like you're not telling just one piece of this story. Yes, Ruthie disappears. It has a huge impact on her family, but Ruthie's disappearance is one piece of this family's life. And it's a very extreme piece. Did you ever read Miss Metropolitan by Carolyn Farrell? I haven't, but that's okay. been on my, t- to, you know, be read list forever. So right. okay. it just came out, it came out last year, or the year before. In hardcover, I think it's a couple years old, the paperback's right. out, but what she does with voice, right? Because it's a harrowing story. I mean, these girls get kidnapped by a creep. He keeps them in the house. It's very, very loosely based on that guy in Ohio. And when I say loosely based, it's just the structure of, house girls held captive very bad guy but there are greek choruses throughout so there's a greek chorus of neighborhood ladies and the girls themselves are a singular voice and what carolyn does with voice in this book oh that's wild but there are moments too where there's genuine laughter there's genuine joy because otherwise we'd all just be holding our heads in our hands going i don't know if i can keep doing it but the way she structures this very intense story about missing black and brown girls to use voice in this way and to have this chorus of women who are probably, you know, roughly Dolores's and Irene's age, right? The ladies mm-hmm. of the neighborhood. It's so smart. It's oh, I so, can't wait to read it. so smart. And it's just, and I feel that way about what you're doing with what happened to Ruthie Ramirez, because there are ways that you could have presented the story and still covered what you needed to cover, but it's the humor, it's the joy, it's the moments where someone does something and you're like, oh, yeah that's amazing because we need space to breathe i mean that's the thing like we need space to breathe we still need to have the conversations about colonialism and respectability and all of these terrible legacy things and grammar and grammar like we have to (laughs) it really annoys me it really annoys me like language should be constantly evolving right and we see it with you know disruptors like uber has become synonymous with not calling a taxi and calling a car whatever exactly you know, we do it for other things. And I'm like, yeah, but we don't often extend that grace to people who are doing different things with language because we somehow have decided that, you know, they're yeah. not smart. I don't yeah. get like, I mean, if you yeah. think of like the entire history of rap music, I'm like, hi, yeah, hi, how to manipulate language. And yeah. like, Brilliant poets or lyricists, you know, or rappers. It's so unfortunate how limited people are sometimes when they think about literature or when they think about art. Like you said, I, I think grammar is something that constantly evolves and it's a tool that we use to benefit us. Yeah, completely. something that we bow down to. <laughs> and anyway, like I said, that's an eight hour conversation for you and I. Yeah. Have another yeah. Do you miss these women? Do you miss this world? I think it was a really hard book to write uh, at times. And so there were moments of play. 
but it was also a very painful book to write. And so, you know, there's a part of me that's even in thinking about the book and sometimes talking about the book, it's, it's, it can be a little bit hard for me, you know, I, I guess this goes back to something that you were saying about humor, but I really do think for a lot of, for Puerto Ricans, especially humor is a way of survival, right? And I think that's true about a lot of, um, you know, black and brown cultures. And I see that in a lot of the the literatures. And so I do like there are moments where I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's kind of funny. Well, you know, like, <laughs> you gotta pat yourself on the back. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but it's, you know, but you, like you have fun, you have fun as you write it. And so those, those are fun places to be in the novel. There's a lot of other places that are hard, you know. I think too, I mean, sometimes it's just reflexive when you're laughing at the thing that is horrific because you don't know what else to do. It sounds very counterintuitive, but there are times where you're just like, I, I don't know what else to do. I don't know how else to respond to this yeah. piece of information because I've never experienced something like that. But I do want listeners to understand that there is a big beating heart in what happened to Ruthie Ramirez. And I know mm -hmm. you and I have covered a lot of ground where people are like, wait, am I listening to a history pot? What, what is that? No, this is what art and literature is supposed to do, right? Like you're supposed yeah. to be able to capture the moment that we live in mm -hmm. and like reflect it back at us and just be like, oh, hi, you may not yeah. have Absolutely. Have you had time to read anything else? I mean, I realize your novel is coming out into the world. You teach. There's a million things going on. You probably have already started the next book, but have you read anything lately that has just knocked your socks off? Oh my God, yes. I read Post Traumatic by Chantel oh, Johnson, yeah. is, is the last name. And I just think that novel was just so good. Also, a Puerto Rican writer. So that was exciting to see. It's kind of wild. Because there's two other Puerto Rican writers coming out, Melissa Cosaquino and Jennifer Maritza McCauley are coming out with uh, uh, books at the same time. That never happens, right? Like, it never happens that three Puerto Rican women are publishing at a big five and coming out in the same season. So I'm really looking forward to those yep. books as well. I got the arc for Yellowface the other oh, day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you started reading it yet? I have. I have. And we're going to be live on stage in May. Uh, oh, my God. The first few pages, I haven't, and obviously no spoilers, but I was just laughing the first few pages. I mean, it's it's also one of those difficult books that balances attention between the serious and humor, you know, so that has been really fun to go back to. Yeah, it's a really exciting moment. I mean, you know, we don't always do everything perfectly, but to see more voices being added to what's being published is I mean, as a bookseller, it's it's wicked exciting. Sorry, my Boston comes flying out every now and again. Hey. <laughs> you know, if you can represent the I island from South it. Carolina, yeah. you know, I can. We just need as much noise as we can get, and as much yeah. noise as we can make. And and I just I think it's delightful. And there's also a new Esmeralda Santiago novel coming yes. out in August, oh which God. I'm yes, totally I stoked yeah. about. Las Madres is coming, and then yeah. Sochi Gonzalez's Olga Dies Dreaming is was last, out in paperback, yeah, which, you know, she's doing a little bit of what you're doing, too, that balance of of humor and, oh, did, oh, I mean, there's some stuff that happens in that book where you're just like, oh. It's a very Puerto Rican characteristic, the balance between humor and tragedy. It's something, you know, that's our people. I, given what I know about the history of Puerto Rico, I mean, I did, my book club read War Against All Puerto Ricans. Ah, uh, yeah. Which I highly recommend if you need like a basic history of mainland U.S. relationship with, with Puerto Rico. It is absolutely worth reading. 
uh, Nelson Dennis's book. It's not an easy read, but yeah, really important, especially if you want to know what we're doing. Like as Americans, mm. like we should know these things. We really should know these things. Are you working on the next novel? You know, I am. And okay. I'm like, but I'm working on like two things. Okay. And I don't know which one will win. It's, okay. like, it's like, you know, like what it's like you, you, you're taking care of one one kid and then you're like, oh, no, that kid is uh, eating. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like, so I'm like trying to like figure okay. out what to do with it. But it's so at the early stages. You okay. know? But I'm excited. I want to go back and play. I'm excited to write again, you know. Mm -hmm. OK, before I let you go, though, can we talk about the Puerto Rican Literature Project? You're the co-founder of oh, this. Yes. And yeah. I think it's really cool. And I don't feel like I knew about it until I started doing my homework for this episode. So. Can we talk about this? Because it's an online resource. It's available to everyone. It's really kind of groovy. So would you just riff on that a little bit? Yes, most definitely. Okay, so the Puerto Rican Literature Project is a digital archive. We recently received over a million dollars uh, from the Mellon Foundation over the next, uh, over three years. We have one more year left in the grant cycle to create this digital archive, which is basically documenting the lives of Puerto Rican writers. The team, I should say who they are because it's important, you know, but is that USLDH at the University of Houston. Um, and I work with a team of other Puerto Rican scholars mm -hmm. and writers, um, Erika Olivares uh, Pesante, Ricardo Maldonado, Ricardo Solas Rivera, um, Gabby and Caro at USLDH are amazing. I mean, they, they're original founders, uh, not original founders, but basically at, at Arte Publico, Gabby's, you know, um, you know, the head. <laughs> so, um, under right under Nick, but uh, yeah. So these people are. Uh, it's a big team, and we also have um, Ana Castillo Munoz and Anna Portnoy Brimmer. And I mentioned I, it's important to mention all of these people because the project's enormous, and we're working and interviewing uh, hundreds of poets. The goal is to get seven hundred poets on the site um, by next year, and it, we're interviewing poets in the diaspora in the and in the archipelago. Uh, we're focusing on poetry the first phase and then it's uh -huh. going to be Christian the second phase see I just this makes me really happy this just I, the idea that this exists and you guys are just making sure that it gets out into the world my eyes are getting really big as I talk about this because so it's a cool project it. yeah we, it's just such a cool project and we were we were over in Houston working on it on the metadata which is the less sexy portion of the project. <laughs> We live in a data-driven world. We can't, we can't ignore it. I That's would right. love to ignore it, and I just can't. So, I mean, <laughs> you're right. Oh my God, yeah. We do yeah. what we can. We tell stories. We give people, you know, a little bit of laughter and a little bit of, hey, could you think about this for five minutes? Because yeah, mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable, but it's worth knowing, and it's worth understanding, and it's worth knowing these characters. I mean, seriously, Nina, Jessica, Ruthie. Oh, it's really. I mean, there's there's some fun fun stuff. We're going to drop, um, obviously, the other books that we talked about, we're going to drop them in the show notes because oh, I think great. they're pretty important. And yeah. um, Post Traumatic was a great read. Yes. Yeah. And this is where I get to say thank you so much for making the time. Claire, Did I mention one so... last book? Yes, totally. Of course. I, I wanted to also mention uh, another Puerto Rican writer, my dear friend, Xavier Navarro Aquino, who wrote Lodio. And so he, he wrote this last year, and it's an excellent book um, talking about Hurricane Maria, um, sort of mythical. So. Uh, it's it's a great book. I recommend for folks to read it. We definitely, definitely need that in the show notes. And I will get them in there. Clara Jimenez, thank you so much. What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez is out now and everyone should read it. Thank you. Thank you. 
I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Port Over, and I've been so looking forward to this taping. And actually, we're taping on Valentine's Day, even though you guys are going to be listening to this in March. Mm -hmm. Elaine Shea Chow is the author of Disorientation. And if somehow you did not read it when it came out in hardcover last year, this is an academic satire that you do not want to miss. And Elaine, I'm so happy to see you, but I'm going to ask you to introduce Disorientation to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Miwa. Disorientation is, uh, you could call it a campus satire. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of feedback that it's not satire and it's real, but I'm like, I love that too. So is it satire? I still, I still don't even know, but it's, it's, I hope funny and it follows Ingrid Yang. She's a PhD student studying a very famous Chinese American poet, Xiao Wen Chao. Um, but we find out she never wanted to research him in the first place. And she's uh, in her eighth year of her PhD program about to be sort of kicked out after this year. What happens is she finds this mysterious note in the Xiao and Chao archives and it sends her down this wild goose chase. She thinks uh, she's found the key to her dissertation, but it actually is much bigger than that. And what happens afterwards is she really has to confront the things she believes, uh, sort of the life she thought she wanted, all the relationships around her. Really, she has to confront herself and I think look in the mirror in a way that a lot of us could happily live our lives and, and not look in the mirror. <laughs> so yeah, I would say it's a journey of her her sort of self-discovery. I really love Ingrid, but there were moments where she frustrated me and I get exactly who she is and where she's coming from. So I don't want anyone to think that, you know, I didn't like Ingrid, but I did have some moments where I was like, okay, girl. <laughs> and you and I are going to stay spoiler free, even though we are talking about the paperback of your book, there was so much gleeful discovery and there's so much, so many great things happened in this book. And some of them are terrible great, and some of them are great great, but I think I was laughing really, really hard as I read it, but oh. there were also a couple of times where I had to put it down because it hit a little close to a couple mm. of nerves, and I'm glad you hit those nerves, but I still had to put it down for a minute and, and yeah. give myself space for a second. And I think, you know, it's interesting you just said, though, that there are people who don't think of this as a satire, and yet... I just reread the book, obviously yeah. prepping for this. So I've read it twice now. And I don't know if I agree that it's not a satire because you have some really big set pieces, mm. some really big, satisfying set pieces. And there's some characters where it feels yeah. like, oh, maybe you haven't dialed it up to 11. This is just reality. We have all met some of the folks in your book in real life, whether we liked it or not. You have this big heart, this big sense of humor, and I feel like you pull back just in time in a couple of places where, mm. shall we say, people break into other people's houses. Um, <laughs> there's, like, there's some caper flick stuff yeah. that happens in this book, and there's some friendship stuff that happens because our girl Ingrid is evolving, and luckily she does evolve, but mm -hmm. she has some moments where I'm like, don't 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 be the one who can only be the only Asian in the room. Don't be that. <laughs> yeah, don't she, be that person, was, Ingrid. Yeah, for most of her life, that was her identity. I think be the only Asian. 
I mean, even when she's like, well, I don't want to eat Asian snacks. It's like, well, then you're missing out on the tasty stuff. So that's just more for the rest of us. I, I <laughs> okay. did have moments. I mean, Ingrid grows up in Massachusetts. Her mm -hmm. parents are the only immigrants for miles around, let alone the only Asian immigrants. And she's part of a program. She's part of the East Asian Studies Department at this tiny college mm -hmm. that is not known for a lot except for the archive of this poet that she ends up studying and she doesn't even really want to and mm -hmm. can we talk about her her professor can we talk about michael for a second mm. oh my you introduce him because i have feelings about this guy <laughs> michael bartholomew i feel like mm -hmm. there is one in every east asian studies department across america what am i saying across the globe and yeah. even in Asia, they're there. So I taught ESL after I graduated um, from undergrad. I went to Taiwan and lived there for a year. Mm -hmm. And Michael really epitomizes this type of white man that I would meet in Taiwan, who is perfectly fluent in Mandarin um, and probably another Asian language and likes to lord it over you and, mm -hmm. and has memorized all these facts about Asia and, and likes to also lord that over you usually is married to an Asian woman and uses that as extra proof. He's somehow, I don't know, Asian on the inside. It's very frustrating when these men use their partners and children as a way to sort of prove something about themselves. But I think they make Asia their personality. And I just found that so ridiculous that one could take an entire culture and try to make it their entire life when a culture is not something it's it's not like a hobby they're everywhere and i think because they're everywhere in all these departments and they have a lot of power mm -hmm. they end up shaping narratives about asia and and they publish a lot of books about any of these definitive academic texts quote unquote explaining what asia is to presumably a white audience and they really frustrate me and so when I created Michael I really wanted it was my chance to uh sort of reveal him for the ridiculous figure that he is there's this presumption of authority that makes me itch mm. it just makes me itch and you know small example but if you're digging around for translations of Japanese folklore and mythology even in the U.S. in 2022 mm. 2023 the vast majority of translations are all done by men, white men. And I'm just kind of like, hi, um, I'm pretty sure there are Japanese people, Japanese Americans, Japanese Japanese who can also translate. And some right. of them might even be women. And, you know, when you consider the feminine in Japanese folklore and Japanese mythology, mm -hmm. I, you know, and also Tale of Genji was the first novel ever written and it was written by a woman, but hey, right tiny things tiny <laughs> tiny tiny things and yeah you know having been an asian studies major in college on the east coast i mean we didn't have asian american studies it just it didn't mm -hmm. exist on the east coast when mm -hmm. i was in school so yeah it hits a little close to the bone and then we have ingrid's boyfriend steven oh steven yeah <laughs> he's he's i i feel the younger generation of michael so he's maybe not as obsessed with you know ancient china but he, he fixates on Japan. And th this is something that I've just joked a lot about with my Asian friends is that 
for whatever reason, a lot of people who have an obsession with Asia choose Japan as their entryway. And Stephen is, I think, of that generation that's, I don't know, I, well, I don't really say that he reads manga or watches anime, but that sort of genre, you know, or maybe that, that sort of hipster white dude who's really into Kurosawa films or something, you know. Kurosawa <laughs> and, you know, Tanizaki's short stories, but not mm. the Makioka sisters, but definitely, you know, the creepy weird stories, Shore and Mishima, you know. Oh, and Mirakami. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Mirakami. Mirakami. I remember this, this became another running joke is when I would be guys like this I don't I don't know and they even dress a certain way and they all have like the same glasses and then um, I was working at a bookstore in Brooklyn and one of my coworkers was sort of this type maybe I shouldn't be saying but anyways one day I just heard him saying favorite author is Mirakami and I've, I've read like every single and was like recommending him to a, a customer and I almost like tripped on myself and was like of course of course the pieces all come together why are you all the same please be more original <laughs> but we're talking about performance art i mean it's all a level of performance art and again it's this presumption of authority and it's this presumption of understanding and and the thing that you did for steven that i don't know if i'm still rolling my eyes or if i'm still i dude's a fake translator dude does not speak japanese and yet yeah. gets a contract Mm -hmm. to translate a Japanese novel. And he basically writes an English version of this book that makes no sense. Yeah. And of course, the sex scenes get twice as long and everything else gets left out. And it's like, oh, 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 oh yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, and that's where we see translation as discourse. And it's right. not an invisible sort of, you know, vessel or, or what have you. There is always some distortion. There is always mm -hmm. some subjective means to an end i think and ingrid's bookended herself with these two dudes she's bookended herself with stephen her fiance mm -hmm. and michael her thesis advisor i guess we could call him a mentor but i mean he's i can't really imagine being mentored by this dude he <laughs> i'm just gonna sit here and make faces for a second because of this dude <laughs> You know, certainly they're not the only piece of her orbit. Mm -hmm. There are women in this book who are offended. There's Eunice, her best friend, who I did also, I had a couple of moments with Eunice where I was like, hmm, okay, sweetie, we need to talk. And Vivian, who I love, I love Vivian. She's also, she strikes me as she should be six foot tall and she's probably not, but she really does like have that larger than life yeah personality but i want to talk about the women for a second they're much stronger together than they are apart they don't really realize that until yeah. you know a good chunk of the way into the book but i'm assuming ingrid shows up first and then vivian and eunice show up sort of as they need to as you're writing but am i right about that yeah no you're you're very much right so i wrote three um different versions of the novel uh, okay from scratch because okay. each time oh, I thought I had failed. Yeah, each I would I wrote, you know, the first version and then hated it and okay. was like I'm I'm never going to write a novel. I failed and then tried again a few months later, wrote it all in the first person. So, 
in the very first version, Ingrid is actually, she's in her 50s and she's married to a congressman and they have two children. So it was a completely different. Okay. Sort of, yeah. I mean, she's still a professor researching Chow, but mm -hmm. in the second version, uh, she's, I think, 35 and she has this sort of love hate relationship with a student named Jeremy Nguyen, who's a really big activist on campus. He's the only Asian student in the Black Student Union. His girlfriend's also a Black activist. And so he sort of looks at someone like Ingrid and thinks, well, she's just sort of a lost cause, right? Well, she has this attraction to him. And I thought it went, ended up being a little too pat for her okay. sort of nemesis to be the one she falls for. So right. Jeremy's character became Vivian and then Alex, sort of both, yeah, they, they, he separated into yeah, both yeah, of them. Yeah. And I'm so glad that happened because I really, yeah, I think I needed both of them, Vivian and Alex. And then it was in the third version, I realized Ingrid was just doing so much alone. And I was mm -hmm. like, I haven't given her a friend. <laughs> so it didn't, she needed a friend. It took until, oh, yeah, the third. Oh, she yeah. needed a co, yeah, no, she needed Absolutely. someone to be her partner and, mm -hmm. well, kind of crime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she needs... needed a partner in crime. She needed someone to be like, sweetie, let's do your hair or something, which wasn't always <laughs> right. the most opportune moment, but sometimes you need a friend who's like, just step away. Yeah. Sit down. And you. I thought it would be so fun for Ingrid to have this friend who's the polar opposite mm -hmm. of her in, in her upbringing, because I feel we haven't seen, I think, as much representation of Asians who have grown up in, in huge Asian enclaves, like True. in the San Gabriel Valley, where mm -hmm. Eunice is from. And I, I think like we all have hangups, but their hangups are a little different. And friends I've talked to who grew up in these sorts of towns would feel actually a lot of anxiety and insecurity over mm -hmm. not being completely fluent in their mother tongue. Like that was the cool standard. And that blew my mind because where I grew up was mostly white. It was, that was not cool. You didn't want to be able to be perfectly bilingual. You'd be sort of made fun of for that. And I thought it was beautiful and incredible that that flipped. Well, not that kids should feel insecure about anything, but I, I was like, I love that universe and imagining a character who grew up in that world and doesn't have the hangups Ingrid has. Yeah. And Ingrid, she sort of bounces back and forth between being really hard on herself, which I wish she would do less of. I really wish she would be less terrible to herself. And I can only imagine eating that many antacids and that many allergy pills. Like, like how Her insides must be a mess. With, yeah, with completely. And, but, it's, <laughs> but watching her do this, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is kind of her answer to everything. Take an antacid and ignore it. And it's like, well, sweetie, you kind of can't. Kind of a lot bigger than that. But right. to have Eunice there as sort of a check in mm. a way, because Ingrid's not really letting anyone else in. That tick that Stephen has where he's constantly saying dear every time he talks to Ingrid, <laughs> is he channeling like a 65-year-old white woman? Like, he's, I, I just... So I'm, patronizing. I, yeah. yeah, it's one of those words where I'm like, I mean, I have very sarcastically said that to my partner. <laughs> Dear. We all have moments where we say something very sarcastically to our person. And dear can, you know, it can be deployed carefully. But Stephen's just using it with abandon. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? And 
he's who he is. And Ingrid chooses to be with him. And mm -hmm. for a while, she's very happy being engaged mm -hmm. to him. I do love the fact that her dad is not so thrilled. Yeah. Go Baba. Go <laughs> Baba. Baba. He knows what's up. Yeah. Mm, he, he does. What are you doing with this clown? Is what he's basically thinking the whole time. So three different versions mm. from scratch. Mm -hmm. Ingrid is the most consistent piece of it, whether she's yeah. 50 or 35 or she is sort of the whole of it. So when did you know you had Ingrid's voice? Because it's a tricky voice. It's a great mm -hmm. voice, but it's tricky. She's not simple. She's not hanging out in the corner going, okay, well, what's next? It's more mm -hmm. a matter of, oh, sweetie. Yeah. Oh, There's a lot of oh, sweetie. <laughs> Oh, right. Oh. I know a lot, a lot of people want to shake her by the shoulders, which I get. I, I, and I really needed the reader to hang in there with me to be like, don't mm -hmm. give up on her. You know, it's, it's coming, but she is very frustrating. So that the voice was really, really hard. I struggled mm -hmm. a long time with that. So in the first version, it's in the third person, a little more omniscient, mm -hmm. this narrator who's very snarky. And I had recently read The Sellout by Paul Beatty and I oh was enamored. God. And I think that version was me trying to be Paul Beatty. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, there's only one Paul Beatty. So yes. I think I didn't real, you know, I couldn't find what my voice was for Ingrid. And then the first person, I think it really helped me to be in her head. But as I found out after I wrote, you know, 70,000 words, <laughs> finished that version, it, it really doesn't work because she's so clueless. Yeah. And you need when when you're in the first person, how do you have that distance to show mm -hmm. sort of how she could be interacting with the world, but how she's not? Mm -hmm. You're just already in her head. And so I realized, okay, I have to go back to the third person. And I was, yeah, I feel like there's a certain comic voice that you can see in a confederacy of dunces and Penin, where this character is sort of inherently comic in that they are just at almost living in their own bubble, you know, bumbling through the world. And we can see them as the slightly ridiculous figure they are. But at the same time, I think in both those novels, there is a great tenderness for this character, right? There's still, we're still meant to empathize with them. So I think there aren't a lot of books that do that. And I really struggled with finding that voice. How can I gently sort of portray Ingrid in a way where we see, oh, why, why are you doing that? Your, your life could be so different, but at the same time, not to be so harsh to her that we don't understand what she's going through. And yeah, it took a while to find that, that exact sort of sweet spot. Ingrid's bubble feels very real, though, and I think there are a lot, and not just Asian Americans, but I think for any non-white, and I'm going to use a giant umbrella term, but I think there are lots of folks who, you know, they're struggling with where we are as a country, where we are as a society, where we are. I mean, language changes. There are people that have a hard time with changes in language. There are people who have a hard time in structural changes. And, you know, obviously a lot of folks have been doing a lot of work to make significant structural changes, whether it's financial or housing or we just, there's so much going on in the States right now. And mm -hmm. it felt very real and very organic for her to sort of be a little clueless. Not every single one of us is banging on a door saying, we've got to change, we've got to change. She's just sort of trying to live her life. And she's given herself these guardrails, right? Like, 
I'm supposed to be engaged. I'm supposed to get a PhD. I'm supposed to... She's just set up all of this stuff and none of it seems to particularly be bringing her any kind of joy. Exactly. Yeah. I think Ingrid really clamped on to that model minority upward mobility lie that we were all sold to sort of be that the closest you could have to safety, true safety in America is to be white adjacent in the sense of um, seek that sort of upward mobility, but keep your head down. Don't ask for too much. Um, and obviously you're not going to get promoted anyway. <laughs> they just don't want you to do the busy work um, and uh, not take their power. And so Ingrid, I think, yeah, I think a lot of Asian Americans have fell in, into this sort of path, life path. Um, sometimes it's pressure from, you know, it could be all different reasons, but I wanted Ingrid to realize that's not what brings you happiness. And she really struggles with basically acting out other people's expectations. One of the myths I really wanted to combat is that Asian women are apparently um, inherently submissive and Obedient yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, which I think is so <laughs> hilarious when you like, have you met any Asian woman? I just, I think of my coterie of women and cousins and friends and everything, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, nope. Nope. <laughs> not even the eight year old. Not even the eight year old. And like, you know, I showed up with this personality. <laughs> this submissive is just not. And yet when you turn on, yeah, the TV or you go to the movie, that's how we're portrayed. Like, we're bowing <laughs> half the time and uh, giggling, you know, behind our hands, unable to make eye contact. Like, that's how, I don't know, timid and docile we're portrayed as. So I wanted to show she is not inherently, none of us are inherently like that. But this is what happens when the the discourse around who you should be, what you're allowed to be is so overwhelming that she doesn't have the ability to question it and just adopts what other people put onto her and, and sort of mirrors it back. And I think that's, that's what it means to be complicit. Right. And it's so hard to liberate yourself. The, the box people have, have written for you and to the, the boldness it takes to reimagine that it's not easy. And um, I think it takes a lot of us, many years and and the younger generation that's why i'm envious of them because this kind of talk and this discourse it's on you know TikTok, and and they i think have a cursory understanding of it but for my generation the pain of just <laughs> gradually unlearning everything i've been taught it always gets me too when i see someone sort of attempting the model minority life where i'm just like you know we didn't choose this for ourselves right you like you know this is a label that was ascribed to us by people who are not us as a tool to use against people who are also not us. And I'm like, I'm mm -hmm. not someone's chess piece. Right. You know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not your chess piece. And why are you, what, what? It's so frustrating to me when I see people, and we do, we see it in the community where we've got folks who are buying into, you know, I'm not woke or I'm not, and I'm using buzzwords for particular effect. But, you know, I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. And, I just want to flip it back and say, well, do you believe in evolution? Because things can change. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes we move, you know, we change trajectory a little bit or we, you know, our orbit shifts, like pick whatever metaphor you want, but maybe it's not moving against something. Maybe it's moving forward towards something that's better.
And that shift is really hard for some people. Mm-hmm. It is so hard for some people. And I'm just thinking of Timothy, our buddy, <laughs> Timothy. Oh, That's, Timothy. Yeah, he means well. He means, And we've all met a dude like this. Again, we've all met a guy like this. They're in office. Yeah. They keep winning. T- the Timothys yeah. of our community mm-hmm. are winning more and more elections. And I'm just, you know. It's terrifying. You know, community is always full of multitudes. And so every community has people who are on every side of the spectrum. So it's weird because at the same time, I'm like, am I being sort of unfair in saying we should all be united on this side? Or do I owe it to my community to recognize that we are full of multitudes. <laughs> and so if some of us are Trump supporting, gun toting, <laughs> you know, is this equality so that we can be as bad as white Republicans? <laughs> These are questions that keep me up at night, Miwa. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily you write fiction about them. I, I do think all of this needs to be turned into art, whether it's film, whether it's, you know, music, whether it's I mean, books, obviously, are my preference. But they're conversations that I wish we were having. I would love to see us just be able to write about whatever we feel like writing about. I would like to see the multitudes represented because I'm not going to pretend that we don't exist the way we exist. We right. are complicated. We are layered. Some of us are immigrants. Some of us are not. Some of us want to move towards the future and some of us certainly do not. Like, I mean, but we're all here. And mm-hmm. if we're not having the conversations, there's almost no Venn diagram in some mm-hmm. parts of our communities. And I'm just looking at this going, what is wrong with us? What's like, wrong with what, Why are we not, like, go ahead. You really want to give money to that? Okay, fine. I can't stop you. But, like, can we at least have the conversation? And we are so shut down in so many ways. And Vivian is a character I love. She is the absolute polar opposite of Timothy. But she does pay a price for her activism and her belief. And when I say she pays a price, it's just her physical health her emotional health, her relationships. I mean, she's absolutely fighting what she believes for what she believes in. And and I absolutely respect that. But wow, it takes a toll on her. And that's another piece of the conversation we have to have is we've got the same people fighting all of the battles at once and other people saying, well, I just can't do that. Or that's not convenient. Or that doesn't Mm -hmm. impact me. So I'm not going to do it. And I'm just kind of looking yeah. at everyone going, well, if everyone did a little bit, it would be less stressful for all of the people who are for, doing all of the work. Right. For Vivian. Yeah. Activist burnout. We don't talk enough about how you'll see an activist. Like I remember, you know, during Ferguson 2014, you would see, you'd see videos of them, you know, standing up, speaking at protests and then, and well, at every sort of police shooting, it would happen again in 2016, of course, and then 2020. But a lot of the these activists we don't hear from again because it is such a heavy position to be put in to carry the weight of justice for your entire community. And I wanted to show with Vivian that there is this fine line between taking care of others and then taking care of yourself. And I remember at one point, nothing as extreme, but I think because when I was doing more organizing and when I was sort of more publicly speaking out against injustices, I had sort of put myself into this position where suddenly if something tragic happened and I didn't stand up and say something, it became 
oh, do people think I don't care anymore? Do people think I have become desensitized? Or mm -hmm. it, it suddenly felt like I didn't know how to balance not wanting to watch, you know, for example, very brutal, violent videos, and then find the emotional energy to write about why it upset me and and then to find the resources of how we could try to, you know, I was at one point like looking up all the sheriff police were creating emails like you could, oh, just fill in this email and say why we would need justice for this person. And it was, it took a toll. on I don't know how any of us can feasibly do because activism is a job, but mm -hmm. it is such an emotional job. And right. people take that for granted. People think it's easy to just show up at a protest and, and like talk on top of a trash can. <laughs> but it's, you don't know what's behind that person's life. You don't know if they're breaking down the minute after, we look up to them as pinnacles of strength. So then they carry another burden of people who don't feel able to publicly do something. And then they think we're relying on them. I don't know the answer, but I just knew with Vivian, I could try to show something I think we don't talk about, which is long-term activism is rare many people bow out for different reasons. I mean, the book is divided into four parts. I mean, it's essentially, it goes through the year, fall, winter, spring, mm -hmm. summer. And I love some of the chapter heads. They were a treat. <laughs> they were totally a treat. <laughs> Good. But one of the things I really appreciated reading Disorientation is the fact that the characters are real. And yes, we've made fun of Michael and we've made fun of Stephen and Timothy. And, you know, here we've got the women as well. And, you know, Ingrid, I love her, but... Mm. There were a couple moments, I'm not going to pretend, there were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, come on, Ingrid, get it together. Mm -hmm. But you're not writing about caricatures. I mean, these are, and again, this comes back to something you said very early in the show, which is there are people who do not consider this satire. And I think that is a legitimate point of view. I'm just saying that for me as a reader, I did not feel that way. I felt like everything was on 11 for a reason. And, you know, the laughter got me through some of the stuff where I'm like, oh, yeah. And one of the things you do, too is that Ingrid's parents are not pushy. They are not those parents. You have freed us. You have freed, freed, freed us from, yes, the immigrant parent trope, mm. which I would be perfectly happy if we all just stopped doing. I don't care where your parents came from. Like that and stinky lunchboxes. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but can we stop with the stinky lunchbox thing? Because it's not stinky just because the kid's sitting down. Like, that's their issue, not yours. Like, stop with the stinky lunchbox. Also, I didn't even get to bring my lunch to school because I went to day school and they served us lunch. And if I never have to eat chop suey again, which is mm. elbow macaroni, hamburger and tomato sauce, like, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what this is. I don't want to eat it, but I don't have a choice because this is what you're feeding me today. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why is it called chop suey? I, I have no idea. That's the first time I've heard of this. It, I think it's a weird uh. East Coast thing. It, it, many of the things from my childhood, I just ascribed to being weird East Coast things because I don't yeah. have an explanation. Otherwise. I just had a really terrible <laughs> because, hmm, yeah, you know, I just thought if, if they if it looks sort of gross or unappetizing and that's why it was called that. I learned just the other day that a restaurant in Louisiana in the 90s went out of business because other restaurant owners started this rumor that they serve dog meat. Oy. And I feel part of the myth of dog meat is using words like chop suey or mushu. Like, I, th I think, uh, like, if you're from Chinese uh, 
cultures, you're like, I've never heard of a chop suey. I've never heard of a mushu. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that was really depressing and also absurd that where that would be so difficult to procure. <laughs> like, you know, easy it is to get chicken and, and like beef. Like, why would you go out of your way to try to? I got nothing. <laughs> I, I'm just going to sit here kind of in horrified awe. That's othering on steroids. And I mean, obviously, othering is a piece of your, but the dreaded other. Ingrid kind of doesn't know she's been othered. We need to talk about Ingrid and the other thing for a second, because she mm. could do better than this dude, Stephen. She really could. Oh, yeah. And yet she settled and she's being othered by her person, which, ew. But she's okay with it. She's not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of relationships out there where if the the woman is Asian, for example, and the man is white, like he has a pattern of dating just Asian women. And mm -hmm. I've heard different justifications of why they would like to stay with this man. Yeah, who am I to judge <laughs> the personal relationship, I guess. But for Ingrid, this was part of her journey in, in terms of she thinks Stephen is all she can get in a way. I mean, I think the fact that he's white, it's her a lot of internalized messaging growing mm -hmm. up in white America that I think we, we the surface level is people say, oh, Western beauty standards. I'm like, it's deeper than that. It's about evil and good. <laughs> Literally, Chinese people, our first introduction to this country in the 1800s were, were that we were evil and we were portrayed as like, monster serpent like looking creatures in all these propaganda photos and that i i truly think has never gone away the yellow peril we see it crop up all the time this chinese spy balloon oh, <laughs> i can't no, i i, I don't I, know i know i'm right there with you i was like uh -huh. right satire I, i'm just like is this satire? this is why the the fear of yellow peril has never left since its inception and so I think Ingrid and so many Chinese Americans, Taiwanese Americans internalized mm -hmm. that America, white America is the hero. They're the goodness that can uh, save you from the, you know, evil, uh, whatever, China mm -hmm. that we want to ban and, ex you know, send back to China and whatnot. Anyway, so Ingrid has all of that inside her when she decides to consistently date white men that suck and I think don't deserve to touch a hair on her head. And I wanted to show the flip side, like the pain of, I think, Asian men who were interested in her in her past that she just shut out completely. But yeah, so there are all these yeah messy reasons why she ends up with a guy like Steven and why I think a lot of Asian, um, and not just women, you know, it's across genders, um, can end up with people who you don't know if they actually objectify you behind sort of, you know, closed doors. Ingrid needs to start asking questions. And I think that's the beauty of so much of what happens in disorientation is because when she starts asking questions, you know, you can sort of mentally see her eyes getting really big. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, oh, what just happened? And, and she's not fully prepared for consequences. Mm -hmm. She's not fully prepared for her own responses to things. I mean, mm -hmm. she's 
in some ways, she's really immature, which I wasn't expecting. I mean, she's 29. She's in the eighth year of her PhD. Da, 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 da. I mean, obviously, grad school was never going to happen for me. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, oh, you are really young. And it's kind of refreshing to see because if she had all the answers, we'd have a little less fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it makes sense that she was a little older, but just purely for the generational thing. I think her being younger, because the book is set in 2016. And I think for her to be younger, that Vivian's a few years younger. And so she captures growing up more with the internet and in tune with sort of just what's going on in the world in a way that Ingrid isn't. I wanted to show it, it makes more sense the older you are, <laughs> more you are entrenched in a way of thinking. And it's, yeah, you really have to challenge yourself to unlearn things, I think, when you're older versus when you're younger, you're just maybe more naturally exposed to them. And so it's not as necessarily as much work. Yes, but Ingrid, she, the most terrible thing to happen to her that could, that could happen to her has to happen for her to finally have her awakening. And if, it, if she hadn't made that discovery, I fear poor Ingrid would right now be married to Steve. <laughs> Yes, but luckily for us, you yeah. had control of the narrative. <laughs> Did writing disorientation change you? Oh, Mila, that's a wonderful question. Yeah, writing disorientation was me slowly trying to unpack my relationship to my identity. Yeah. My relationship to white men, white institutions, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my relationship to my childhood. So I think not that to conflate me with Ingrid. You know, but I think disorientation was in a way my ode to parts of Asian American reckonings. And that happened, I think, in those years around 2016, before and after. A lot of us, I think, had to, with someone like Trump and then now with all the COVID induced hate crimes, it's how can any of us think we are safe in this country or that? the model minority myth is the thing that's going to save us and keeping our heads down and not complaining is going to save us. And so I had been reading a lot of things, um, collecting little tidbits of history, and I would just copy and paste document. And I, you know, I'd be I was on Reddit, I was reading some scary stuff there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, read a little about the MR Asian <laughs> group and terrifying. And at the same time, I understand. Mm -hmm. The pain is, I understand that pain is real, you know, yeah. where it stems from. And it obviously is then comes out in a toxic way, but absolutely the pain is real. And all of these things that were knocking around in my head as I was learning about activist spaces and learning to be in them and to shut up and be an ally. <laughs> Maybe I did too much, you know, it was like to put it all in Ingrid's story but it was all the things that I wanted to talk about with my community. And it's, it has been so great to open the door to these sort of sticky conversations. And, you know, many people have told me, <laughs> I've heard that exact same line about redheads, Italian, <laughs> the whole, it's normal to have racial preferences. <laughs> Just knowing people feel seen and knowing that, you know, as if we bring this out in the open, I hope it is that much harder to fly under the radar and that men like Steven in their personal lives, but also professional lives who are, I think, 
taking away opportunities from us and profiting off of us. I hope they can be called out for what they are. I hope, yeah, we can have these honest conversations about what we have at stake is always not even greater. It's just, we have things at stake and they don't. And so I think when it comes to talking about making art, it must be said, you know, things change if, if you have something at stake. And I would just like us to get as many stories out there as possible. I think that's a big piece of it is just why can't we have messy domestic dramas and why can't we have academic satires or why can't we just have comedic novels that kind of make you sit and go, hmm, okay, I'm laughing, but maybe am I supposed to be laughing at this? I just want us to be able to tell the range of stories. And for a yes. really long time, we've been ascribed a certain role and that role is not interesting. And yeah. I really would just like to see us do whatever we feel like doing whenever we feel like doing it. And, and if mm-hmm. some people are made uncomfortable by that, well, you know, life can be interesting. And <laughs> yeah, know, and we have to be able to disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. I think there's such a fear that if we publicly air our disagreements, we will never achieve sort of a united liberation. But I think that it would be so dangerous to erase the differences between us. And I think, have you seen the newest season of Atlanta? I haven't, and I need to. It is okay. Up, but... I won't. I won't mention it. Okay. okay, there's a few episodes, especially one. I think that's called Mr. Chocolate. Uh, yeah, I have. <laughs> yes, oh, have you heard it, of it? I have, and it, there is. Oh, you and I could keep going for a while. Yeah, but but it's an example of when you're acknowledging, yeah, like with Donald Glover, I think is in the black me, there is division. And there is, which is natural among any, as we talked about, if you're human, this this is what happens, I would love us to be able to make art that can shine a light right on those, those messy parts of ourselves that don't fit into these neat little boxes. Yeah, I really hope I'm I'm with you. I'm, I'm trying to get it there my little corner of the universe i'm trying to write my the messy (laughs) yeah well i'm going to shout out your story that just ran in the atlantic background which if listeners have not read it yet go find it it's fantastic it's part of your story collection that's coming out in 2024 which i have seen you tease as kind of a genre busting i'm playing with lots of stuff i'm doing interesting stuff (laughs) and i am dying to read this book also background, it's just, it's a terrific story. It's unexpected in some ways. It is a father-daughter story that I have not seen before. And mm-hmm. right there, I really respect a lot of the choices you made. And yes, I'm not going to spoil this. It's a short story. Go find the short story. You can read it <laughs> very quickly. Um, but it's fantastic. It is Thank absolutely you. fantastic. And um, it was really wild. I, it was, I just didn't know what to expect. I was like, well, here's this new story. Okay. And... <laughs> <laughs> The entire time, I'm just, I could not stop reading. And yes, short stories are designed, you know, to be devoured quickly. But this mm. was, yeah, I love this story. So I can't do, wait, does the story collection have a title? Yeah, it's called Where Are You Really From? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That line. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's kind of all you can do when you hear that line is just start to laugh. I, just, uh, just laugh and, and slowly walk away as you continue uh, laughing. I think. <laughs> yeah. Or you just have fun and say Boston and watch people. What? No, really. Yeah. And <laughs> no, then seriously. Just keep, keep going. Like, do you want the address of the hospital where I was, what you want, where I was conceived? Uh, 
<laughs> and I got this question so often in France. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I combien? Just to... mm. <laughs> oh, no, that is no. <laughs> they, they phrase it as your origine, but that's how they uh. What are your origine? And so I actually just started saying, I don't answer that question. Yeah. And they would be like, why, why? Like, because I think they think they're owed this information as if it's public and for I don't know but I would just say political reasons and then they couldn't they didn't know what to say. <laughs> but I, so that I don't know if anyone has been struggling with that maybe you could try this just you know answer for political reasons <laughs> let them do what they will with that but thank you for yeah for shouting that out and well I mean I'm I'm still revising we'll see if it comes out in 2024 maybe okay. 2025 but you know fingers crossed <laughs> We can be patient. It's okay, Elaine. We can be We have disorientation. We can hang out for a minute. And also disorientation has, you're working on the teleplay, right? That's been uh, on the film adaptation. Oh, fil- okay. So it is film. I wasn't sure if it was a, a limited series or film, mm. but so that's coming at some point. So it's not like I you're hope. going anywhere. <laughs> we know where to find you. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a creepy, weird way. I mean, in a yay. Let's create all of the art. Let's have all of the conversations, even if they make us itch a little bit. And, uh, you know, because honestly, the way we've been doing it has not been working well for a lot of us. So why don't we just change how we engage and when we engage and what we're doing and Mm -hmm. see if maybe that gets us to a different place or something, because it's (laughs) we can do better. We really can. And we and we have, I think, is is a thing Mm -hmm. our history as Asian Americans and the activism in the 60s and and before and after, so much of that has been um, also kept from us. And I had to learn as an adult, no one taught me in Mm. school. So I hope it's it's us recognizing, oh, we have been trying to subvert the system. We have been holding space for ourselves, taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and ourselves and not relying on these other institutions. And so I hope we can feel inspired by our past too, when it comes to, you know, what lies ahead. If you look at what we were doing in the sixties and seventies, model minority is not a phrase that comes to mind. Mm. And there's some great photographs and there's some great literature. Mm. Like there's a lot of stuff that I would love to see some younger generations hit up. There's a lot of really interesting Mm -hmm. folks who did interesting stuff that I think not everyone knows about. Yeah. I'll shout out a book. Um, I Hotel. <laughs> I ho- yeah, I Hotel by Karen yep. T. and Nishida. Incredible. That was how I found out a lot about the history of Asian American activism, which is what she she did like years of amazing. research. Yes. So if people who are listening want to to know more about this period, that's that's such a great book that it's fiction, but it also mm-hmm is like this sort of beautiful ode, I think, to this real, like, uh, you know, non-fictional ode to our history. I would love to see a movie. I was thinking that would be so Uh cool to see a period piece of Asian American activism and even just sort of the collaboration with Black activists and then someone like Richard Aoki, is that how you pronounce his last name? You know, I think he's a really fascinating figure, too, that who knows? I mean, he, mm-hmm. he when he passed away, I think he took so many secrets with him and mm-hmm. uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think me and you could talk for. Oh, we definitely could. Sorry, I keep getting. No, no, no. It's totally great. No, it's totally great. But yeah, maybe we should just 
do a whole different series, but oh wait, no, no. Okay, <laughs> hold on, hold on, dialing it back. <laughs> Elaine Shea Chow, thank you so much. Disorientation is a treat. It's a roller coaster ride. It is all of the things you want in a novel, including a couple of moments where you want to put it down for a second and think about what you just read. But um, mm. for the most part, it is just wild fun. Wild, wild fun. Thank you so much for this book. And thank you for joining us on Board Over. Thank you, Mia. This was so wonderful getting to know you. And uh, it just felt like talking with a friend. Thank you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We've got a couple of great books to recommend based off of today's double shot episode. I've got two fantastic booksellers recommending books today. So Jamie, Madison, take it away. Thanks, Mark. I'm Jamie. I'm coming to you from my home store in Leewood, Kansas. You can follow me at KS. If you had to keep turning pages to find out what happened to Ruthie Ramirez, you might also be interested in reading Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. Um, this is another multi-generational family drama with a mystery at its core. There are two siblings um, who are estranged, and they come together after the death of their mother. And she leaves behind a lengthy audio recording full of revelations, um, including a half-sister that they didn't know about, um, some instructions for them, and a frozen piece of black cake which is a traditional cake served at Caribbean um, Christmas celebrations. And it's filled with this delicious mixture of fruit and rum and spices. And in the book, the cake is a cake, but it also serves as a symbol, right, of the blending across cultures, across the incredibly mixed up life of this woman, their mother, Eleanor. But maybe she's not Eleanor. <laughs> maybe that's not even her name. Maybe she's not just their mother. Maybe she's a frightened teenager named Covey, um, a black woman with a Chinese father who is about to be married off to a local creep on a Caribbean island. Maybe she's a murder suspect in love with a boy that she can't be with who escapes to London, where she meets a friend named Ellie, and their lives are transformed by that friendship. You can see there's a lot going on in this book, lots of layers. As Benny and Byron, the two children, are taken on this journey, discovering that their mother is not at all who they thought or assumed that she was, and that just like them, their parents had these multi-layered lives. They had secrets. They faced real adversity and overcame suffering and racism and culture clash. And so the two children have to move um, quickly past that initial shock and anger that they feel about their mother's deception. And as they keep uncovering these many, many layers of her unbelievable story, they feel ready to make changes in their own lives and to accept that not everyone fits neatly into the narratives that we assign for them. So my customers have loved this book. A lot of them talk about how it kept them up turning pages all night long, even though it's not a typical mystery book. Um, they just wanted to see what was going to happen next in the crazy story of this one unbelievable woman's life. Madison? Wonderful. Wonderful. It sounds like a great read. <laughs> um, so I am going to take on the role of recommending a book for disorientation. I'm Madison McGill. Um, my home store is in Los Angeles and you can follow us at Be an Events Grow. So when I was thinking of a book to recommend for disorientation, 
I couldn't stop thinking about Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood, which I know is a romance, but like one of the plot lines is that Olive Smith is a PhD student. She is a woman in STEM. And I kind of want to talk more about that plot point because I think it's really reflective of the main character and disorientation as well. So Olive is a PhD student. She is in a male-dominated field. She's trying to get her like research accepted and recognized. And I feel like this book shows like just how difficult that can be for women in particular when they're in a field that is male-dominated. Sometimes it's harder to be taken seriously. I know also from like personal experience as someone who was in the journalism field, sometimes it's really, really hard to get recognized. And for Olive, she's done all the research, she's checked all her boxes, and she still runs into like the wall of no one is taking me seriously. She goes to a conference where a guy is like, the only reason we're accepting your research is because like I find you attractive and you ha- and you watch her deal with that and how to be like no you're going to take my research because this research is sound I've done all the work I've checked all the boxes I've worked hard for this that's why it's good research it's not because I'm pretty you know so you get to see her like throughout the entire novel kind of have this growth in that and find her stance and find her ground for her to finally like stick up for herself after she's done all this hard work which is why I think if you focus on that plot point, it's a very empowering novel. Other highlights are if you like the fake dating trope, that is also there because it is also categorized as a romance. So it does have those romance elements. But I think what you also see is that through the romance aspect, you also see her finally like take herself seriously and find someone in her academic adventure also take her seriously. She's worked so hard and she finally found someone who will also recognize that, which is why I wanted to recommend Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood. Excellent choice. As always, fantastic choices. Thank you both so much. And uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, you can follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester out in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thank you both so much, Jamie in Kansas and Madison in LA. Have a wonderful day, everybody, and happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.